This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of May 17. This is the first week of the Tournament of Champions, the 2021 Tournament of Champions. Um, Buzzy Cohen is hosting, which I think has been great fun. I think so, too. He has done a very good job. A very yeah. good job. Very good job. He's he's all about being prepared. Uh, he had an Audible Originals um, audiobook released. I think Audible Originals means it's like it's only on Audible and like it's not a print book, I guess, mm-hmm. I think. Pro- probably. Anyway, probably. yeah. What was it called? Get Ready, I think it was. I listened to it. It was... Um, it was pretty good. It had some some helpful tips for Jeopardy and other stuff. Anyway, on Monday, May 17th, we have the first quarterfinal game with the contestant Sarah Jet Rayburn, a writer and stay-at-home mom from Hutto, Texas, Ryan Bilger, a graduate student from McCungy, Pennsylvania, and Jason Zufrineri, a math teacher from Albuquerque, New Mexico. So we have the Jeopardy round categories. Actually, Mondays are pretty cool. Stock symbols, a place in the Bible, quotable films of the 80s and 90s, American history, and foul language. And wouldn't you know it, they started at the $1,000 level. Surprise. Surprise. They did not get chastised for it, though. Mm. In the way that I did. Uh, and it also worked out for them. Because they were able to get all of the $1,000 clues. Mm-hmm. I don't think we saw this week anyone quite imi- trying to imitate the Holtzauer sort of sweep across the bottom line right. strategy. They started at the 1000 and worked their way up. Mm-hmm. Quotable films of the 80s and 90s. And it seemed like people were, most of this week, tending toward starting from the bottom of the board. But often took this strategy of kind of tackling one category at a time but starting from the higher value clues right Uh, the story of this game is ryan and his mannerisms i guess right uh like uh, his his dominance in this game and the Mm -hmm. the way that 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 energy kind of manifested which you know a a lot of people apparently on the internet had took issue with um Mm -hmm. I've met Ryan. Ryan was the alternate for our last Tournament of Champions, so he was there with us for most of the time. Up until we actually taped all of the quarterfinals, you know, if something happened and someone wasn't able to tape, then he would have stepped in. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's, you know, he was clearly very excited, very amped up. And uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, so Ryan does find the first Daily Double. It's in the American History category, which is... Right up his alley, he is a historian, like graduate student studying American history, and he is from Pennsylvania, uh, which becomes relevant. He finds this clue, it's pick number 15, uh, he's at 3,800 ahead of Jason's 3,400 and Sarah's 2,400, and he bets it all. He gets the clue, the 1859 discovery of this near Titusville set off a boom in Pennsylvania, and he is extremely excited because this is like hometown knowledge, uh, he knows that that is oil. 
Yeah, he did the little like chest thump as yeah. the as the clue was being read. So he jumps out to a sizable lead at that point and doesn't really give it up for the rest of the game. <laughs> so at the end of the Jeopardy round, he is up to 9,200, Jason's at 4,200, and Sarah is at 5,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are Classical Music, Time Magazine Person of the Year, TV on PBS, World Geography, Essays, and I Get So Emotional. I enjoyed the Classical Music category. Uh, I, re- I recall, I will just say, a much more challenging classical music category uh, mm-hmm. in my tournament of champions. Not bitter. Not bitter at all. No, but the fact that a two thousand dollar clue is Mazorgsky's night on like night in quotation marks witchcraft <laughs> story. It's like night on Bald Mountain. Have you yeah. seen Fantasia once? There you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, they were fine clues. They were. They were fine clues. They did pretty well with this round. Yeah. Not a whole lot of missed clues at all. Daily Double number two is in the Time Magazine Person of the Year category at the $800 level. And Ryan finds this one as the seventh pick. At this point, he has 16000 to Jason's 5400 and Sarah's 3400 This is where he rubbed some folks the wrong way. Uh, yeah. He found the Daily Double and... Uh, Buzzy asked what he wanted to wager. He said, 6,000, I'm going to go for the kill. And Jason and Sarah are both kind of on record as fine with it. It was, you know, they, they felt that this was, it was a competitive game, but it was all in good fun with good sportsmanship and mutual respect. And they didn't, you know, they, they didn't take it the way some folks on the internet took it. But some some folks on the internet didn't care for it. Imagine that. Yeah, (laughs) he gets the clue. 2015, this national leader instrumental in dealing with Europe's refugee and debt crises. And he correctly responds, who is Angela Merkel? That takes him up to Um, Mm 22,000. So, you know, I mean, he wasn't wrong. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think at that point, he could have pretty confidently just sat out the rest of the round (laughs) And coasted into a wild card spot if he'd wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, he easily he could have done that. Um, I di- yeah, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, Although, I mean, that that clearly bumped him up, and he continued to play the game. But there was a, a stretch of clues where he where he mm, did not get yes. in on the buzzer, and I I wondered about that. I was like, uh, something that might probably cross would have crossed my mind if I had been in that situation is like, if I'm pretty sure I've got a lock. Do I sit back and let the other two and and like not knock it in the way of the other two potentially getting wild card spots, or mm-hmm. do I play a game that might like necessarily lock them out of a potential wild card? Right. I mean, Jason Zufranieri in particular has stats that made people feel like he was really one of the ones to watch, mm-hmm. and if you can try and keep him out of a wild card slot, yeah. Um, you know, you you might be doing yourself a favor in the next round. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. Not to not to dismiss Sarah. She also, I mean, you know, everyone. She on earned here, her spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's J- Jason's Jason's stats were intimidating. Right. Uh, yeah, and a lot a lot of people anticipated him winning the whole tournament. Um, so you know, I think I think you keep pushing. Yeah, although uh, you know, statistically, the number one seed. Like, obviously, James Holzhauer won the last one, mm-hmm. but 
Uh, aside from James, the one number one seed has very rarely actually come out on top in the Tournament of Champions. Yeah. Anyway, Daily Double number three. It's in the essays category. It's at the $1,200 level. Sarah finds it. Uh, she is at 5800 Jason's up to 8200 and Ryan's at 29200 And, you know, in a situation like this, there is a wild card spot to play for. So if it were a normal game... At this point, I would be like, it doesn't matter what you bet, because you're not going to win. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. with, with what's left on the board, you, you can't even catch up to halfway, even if you bet it all. But she wagers 4000 which I thought was interesting. I would have bet it all, just given that, like, if you lose $4,000, the likelihood of being able to get a wildcard spot is pretty low, so you might as well give yourself a better chance. But maybe she mm-hmm. just didn't, she didn't want to risk not being in final. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, she gets the clue. Nora Ephron wrote that she wanted to be her, quote, the only lady at the table, the woman who made her living by her wit. And she gets it correct with who is Dorothy Parker. She seemed to be guessing, but that's that's who they were going for. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Ryan has a lock game with $32,400 in a tournament of champions game. Yeah. Um, yeah. He came to play. Ugh. Sarah's at 9,800. Jason's at 9,400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Ancient Greeks. And the clue, Plutarch quotes this man who sentenced many to death. Small ones deserve that, and I have no hire for the greater crimes. Jason responds, who is Draco? Apparently the source of the adjective draconian, um, a Greek lawgiver known for his harsh penalties. Jason has wagered 9400 taking him up to 18,800. Sarah has responded, who is Crito? That's not correct. And she wagered everything also. So that drops her to zero. And Ryan bet $5, trying to, which is uh, the minimum you can bet in a daily double. In Final Jeopardy, you can bet zero. Um, right. But I thought it was a nice little kind of significant Jeopardy number. Sure. And not risking his lock. And he has who is Draco. So uh, Ryan is an automatic semifinalist as the winner of this game with 32,405. Jason is in good position for a potential wild card slot with 18,800. Sarah has dropped to zero. So um, likely she will not. Uh, I don't know if there's a situation where where she where where you could end up with somebody with a zero advancing and how they would figure that out. Yeah, I'm sure they have a contingency, but I don't think they mention it. Yeah, Sarah's pretty much out of the running at this point. So on Tuesday, we get the second game with the contestants Steve Moltz, a playwright from Louisville, Kentucky, Nabir Sarma, a junior at the University of Minnesota from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, the college tournament champion, and Karen Farrell, a political consultant from Chesapeake, Virginia. Jeopardy round categories are Something's Looming Over Me, Playing Today's Hits, In the National Women's Hall of Fame, I'm on a Boat, Sociology, and Hominimbleness, which uh, gave at least Karen a a hard time pronouncing that category title, which was fun to see. I'm not sure what you were doing with your reading of the uh, I'm on a boat category title, but it made me think of the Old Spice commercials. Oh, it made me think of the uh, Lonely Island song, I'm on a boat. Ah, okay. Um, It was fun watching Nabir get a whole bunch of the today's hits Mm because, you know, college students know that kind of thing. (laughs) Right. 
That's exactly my thought. Although I actually did know... I only knew two of them, but I knew two pop music questions. I felt pretty good about that. Congratulations. Thank you. I knew the driver's license one. Yes, I knew that one too. I also had read the book in the sociology category at the $200 level. A 2015 book found one and a half million families living on $2 a this length of time per person. It's not an hour. I felt like that was an awkward clue. Um, Yeah. But that's... $2 $2 a day is the book. My friend's husband actually wrote that. It's good. Y'all should check oh, wow. it out. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. It was very, very interesting exploring what life is like for families who live in extreme poverty in the United States. And really sad. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Daily Double number one comes up in the National Women's Hall of Fame category at the $800 level. It's the 13th pick. And Steve finds it. He has 400 only at this point to Karen's 3,400 and Nibir's 4,200. So he rightly wagers the maximum allowable, which is 1,000, and gets the clue this first lady who turns 93 in 2020. And he guesses who is Jackie Kennedy. That is incorrect. They're looking for Rosalind Carter. Apparently, she's... She is, I don't want to say insistent because it's her own name, but like clear that her name is pronounced Rosalind. Oh, Rosalind. Okay. Which I I had not heard until this. And I, I saw it somewhere online and I looked into it a little bit and I think that's accurate. I think that's, that's. All right. I get very stuck on her first name because I uh, grew up going to church with a very sweet lady whose name was Rosamond Porter. And so, <laughs> and so I, uh, Porter and Carter and like Rosamond and Rosalind, like I know Carter, right? I, right. I you know, um, but anyway, yes, no, I have, I always have a moment of hesitation trying to come up with the correct first name for yeah, what, Mrs. Carter. What you're actually saying is that you went to church with First Lady Carter in disguise. <laughs> it's like, what's uh, your name? Oh, it's Rosamund yes. Porter. It, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know how those Carters are. It was fun at the $1,000 level of that category, seeing Karen correctly identify the Swiss-born American psychiatrist who identified the five stages of grief. That's Kubler-Ross, which is an everyday name in my field, but not in everybody's. Yeah. Yeah. And the stages of grief are, you know, not a perfect model for grieving processes, which are, you know, much more complicated than like, you know, sort of the orderly, you know, first do, <laughs> first denial, then anger. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Kubler-Ross comes up a lot uh, for me. I-, I wouldn't have been surprised to see her be a triple stumper on Jeopardy. So it was mm-hmm. fun to see Karen get her. At the end of the Jeopardy round... Karen and Nibir are tied at 5,400. Steve's at 1,200. And we have the double jeopardy categories. Well-versed in poetry. Four of the same letter. I was his vice president. The Daily Quintuple. Stand-up comedians. And A material. A in quotation marks. Uh, They started in that vice president category. And they got a $2,000 clue. was Charles Curtis, the first person of Native American descent to be elected vice president. Karen got that with a who is Hoover. I feel like that's, I feel like that's fairly common knowledge, like right now, because uh, people kept saying, "Oh, the first vice president of color." Right, and and it kept coming up. Like, 
you know, the first, the first vice president of Collier was actually back, but whatever. And like all of that. So I feel like that was actually fairly knowable. Yeah. Uh, or at least more knowable than just like giving names. But they, uh, triple stumpered the next, uh, the 1600 and 1200, uh, Charles Dawes was, uh, Coolidge's and John Nance Garner was one of FDR's. And, uh, they moved out of that category, left, left the other two for later, which is like, yeah. okay, but <laughs> they were the, they were Spiro Agnew and Al Gore. Like those were the easy ones. Mm hmm. Yeah. They clued Charles Dawes as Charles Dawes, a man with a plan, which was in reference to the Dawes plan for World War One reparations, which I just looked up on Wikipedia right now. <laughs> um, I saw a man with a plan and not knowing the, that the Dawes plan was a thing when I watched this Jeopardy game. It made me think of the palindrome, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. And, <laughs> okay. and so then, then I was like, am I supposed to be associating him with the Panama Canal? Apparently not. A, yeah, no, <laughs> that would have been a mislead for me. Sure. But yeah, no, if you know of the Dawes plan, which now I do. Um, mm -hmm. Dude, double number two is in the A material category. It's at the $1,600 level. Nabir finds it. He's at 7,400, Karen's at 9,400, uh, Steve's at 1,200, and he wagers 2,000. Nabir, Nabir seemed scared to wager. Mm, like, yeah. he, he, se he seemed very hesitant to wager. Then he wagers 2,000, so he'll be tied with Karen if he gets it right. The clue is the cavity-filling alloy called dental this is half mercury and half other metals, such as silver. And he kind of shakes his head and says, what is amalgam? Because uh, he knows that. I mean, he knows it, and he feels probably, I would imagine, that he should have bet more. Mm -hmm. And Nibiru is also the one who finds daily double number three at clue number 13 of the round at the $1,600 level of the daily quintuple. At this point, he has 8,600. He's uh, missed one or two subsequent to picking up the previous daily double. Karen's at 10,600. Steve is at negative 800. Um, and Nabir wagers just a thousand. And he gets the clue. This cabinet secretary is fifth in the line of presidential succession between the secretaries of state and defense. And he seems to be kind of guessing somewhat at random when he says treasury, but that's correct. Mm -hmm. And I guess another, I should have I should have wagered more moment for a new beer. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, if you're taking a wild guess that happens to be right, you probably, I don't know that you'd feel quite so bad about it. Yeah. Like I thought I wagered like I wasn't going to know it and I didn't know it. So, so um, I, yeah, I happened to luck out. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Karen and Nabir have stayed pretty close. Karen is at 14,200. Nabir is at 13,200. And Steve is back at 2,400. They get the final Jeopardy category, animals, and the clue, German settlers in Texas called this animal Panzerschwein. Steve wrote, what is an armadillo, and kind of shook his head, as though he wasn't sure. Uh, but that is correct. And he bet it all, so he goes up to 4,800. Nabir wrote, what is a coyote frowny face? Aww. That is incorrect. He wagered uh, 1,001, which makes sense. Karen wrote, what is an armadillo? And wagered 2,000, which is where the, the wild card, like, pressure comes in. Because, mm -hmm. as we know, the, the 
most strategically viable bet to win the game outright is a cover bet. Right. But in a situation where you could potentially get a... You could still move on even if you get Final Jeopardy wrong. You have to consider how little you want to bet mm-hmm. in that case. So she she was playing not for the win. She was playing to kind of secure a wild card spot, it seems. Yeah. Yep. Um, additionally, she probably, she may have been considering that Nabir would potentially be pursuing a similar strategy, right? Nabir sure. has enough that he could get a wild card spot. And if he keeps his wager small, he could potentially get a wild card spot even if he misses. Um, mm-hmm. So he is less likely to go all in right. than, you know, than, than a second place contestant might otherwise be at this point. And so I think Karen's chances of getting that win, even with a small wager, are higher than, you know, than, than, than you would normal. normally expect. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, fair. Yeah. I think, I think both of them took some heat for their wagers, but... I, I, I think they make sense. Yeah, I think they make sense in context. I think some of the people giving them heat for their wagers don't really understand how tournament strategy is different from regular Jeopardy strategy and that wild yeah. card piece. A lot of people like don't catch that for some reason, or like when they hear it, they're just like, "I don't know what that means," mm-hmm. and just ignore it. I got yeah. a lot of people ask me about that when I lost the quarterfinal match. Like, oh man, sorry you're out, and I'm like, "Well, I mean, I know what happens, but I have to be like, I'm not necessarily out because I had a really good score, even though I didn't win." There's a there lot are, of wild, card, wild spots, card spots, right? Like. Yeah, there are four. Like, only six out of the 15 people don't make it past the quarterfinal right. round. Right. Like, yeah, three-fifths of the contestants in the quarterfinals advance to semifinals. To semis. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. So. So on Wednesday, May 19th, we have the contestants Ryan Hemmel, a legal technology professional from Los Angeles, California, Paul Trifoletti, an attorney from Athens, Georgia, and Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dewajic, Michigan. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the Southern Hemisphere, herbs, or, or herbs, depending on which contestant is calling the category, under the USA, NFL teams in Spanish, between hell and high, and water. And it seems like a writing flaw here that they needed an explanation on between hell and high that interrupted it before we got to the water uh, category. But in that between hell and high, each correct response is going to be a word that comes between those two words in the dictionary. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a tough triple stumper at the $1,000 level of herbs. The clue there was eating one seed from the castor bean can be fatal due to the presence of this blood clumping toxin. Uh, Jennifer tried what is strychnine. That's incorrect. Then Paul tried what is ryacin. That was incorrect because he added a syllable. Uh, Ricin is the name of that toxin. I think he made it rhyme with like niacin, like Mm -hmm. the which is like one of the B vitamins. I think. Right. Yeah, they couldn't, and they couldn't take it. My only reference point for that is Breaking Bad. But (laughs) Uh, Daily Double Number One is in the water category. It's at the six hundred dollar level. Jennifer finds it. She is at 3,800. Paul is at 1,200. And Ryan's at negative 600. Uh, she wagers 1,500. She gets a clue in Ropu, R-O-W-P-U. 
a system that purifies any water source. The R stands for reverse, and the O stands for this process. She gets that correct with what is osmosis. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Jennifer is at 5,100, Paul is at 2,200, and Ryan is at 3,600. We get the double Jeopardy categories, names of World War II, etymology, literary antagonists, Ola as a suffix, awards and honors, and mains the same. So they give you two names and you tell what kind of animal it is. That was a tough one. It was. Or at least at the at the upper level. Mm-hmm. I sort of liked how they could draw from so many different kind of areas of knowledge in Maine's the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had movies. We had noted zoo animals. We had Kentucky Derby winners. We had literary characters. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I don't know who Lippy and Kovu are, either of them, at the $2,000 level. Lippy the Lion and Hardy Har Har. A Hanna-Barbera cartoon? Okay. All right. So Lippy the Lion is a Hanna-Barbarian. Hanna the... Hanna, Hanna, <laughs> the, Hanna the Barbarian. Just, oh, Lippy Lion. What did I just do? Oh, no. Hanna Barbera cartoon. Sorry, I'm trying to type and talk at the same time as going poorly. Um, oh, yeah. uh, I recognize that. Tovu is the deuteragonist of the 1998 film The Lion King 2 Simba's Pride. A oh, wow. D- direct to video, I think. Classic. Classic yes. right there. I have heard that The Lion King one and a half about Timon and Pumbaa is much better than you would expect. Interesting. Um, but I don't know anything about The Lion King 2 Simba's Pride. Daily Double number two comes up as the second pick of the round. Ryan finds this one at the $1,600 level of Names of World War II. He has $4,800 at this point to Jennifer's $5,100 and Paul's $2,200. And he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. In 1942, he combined two loves of his life, physics and New Mexico, in endorsing Los Alamos to be home of the Manhattan Project. And Ryan correctly responds, who is Oppenheimer? Yes, he does. I wondered about that because, like, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's Oppenheimer, but this is a $1,600 level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, is it? Yeah. Was it somebody else? Is that a trick? Like, a- yeah, Oppenheimer was the only name I could bring to mind, so yeah. it's the one I would have guessed. But yeah, no, I, I had a similar thought process of like, Oppenheimer feels easy for the $1,600 level. Is there another name I'm supposed to know here? Yeah, uh, we get one of Emily's favorite things in that Ryan finds the next Daily Double the very next pick. It's pick number three in the literary antagonist category. So it's at the $1,600 level as well, and the scores are the same, except that Ryan is up to 9,600 now. So he wagers 3,000. And the clue is, the blind monk Jorge of Burros is the antagonist in this novel set in a Benedictine monastery. And Ryan says, what is, I don't know. That is not the title of the book. The title of the book is The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which I'm sure Buzzy knew. Actually, probably did. Probably, yeah. Uh, So he drops down and all the Daily Doubles are gone after pick number three. Mm Mm-hmm. Throwback to one of my favorite deep dives I've ever done. At the $2,000 level of etymology, we had Greek for deep and Mm. ball gives us this word for an early deep sea observation vessel. Jennifer knew that one. That is a bathysphere. 
Nice. Throwback to one of my deep dives, the $2,000 level of Ola. In the 1490s, this religious reformer led a puritanical regime in Florence that burned books and arts at Savonarola. Mm-hmm. Talked about him, too. We're getting more and more things we've talked about here. Yes, indeed. It's fun. We had the rare $400 level triple stumper in Literary Antagonists. In this dystopian tale, the title narrator plays Scrabble with a commander whose name we can assume is Fred. Um, and I'm sure that they all are familiar with the outlines of this work. And I think Clue was just detailed in such a way that it took a little too long to kind of untangle it. This is The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, so the, the narrator is known as of Fred because all the handmaids in this dystopian world are of the first name of the man of whatever household they're stationed in. Right. So that's the, yeah. And then there's this whole Scrabble plot, which is like, she's secretly playing Scrabble with him because like women aren't supposed to be doing anything related to reading but yeah, I think some of the the way that they framed it made it a little hard to get there quickly enough. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jennifer is at 17,900, Ryan's at 10,200, Paul's at 5,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Middle Eastern Geography, and the clue of the six countries that border the Red Sea, it's last alphabetically. Paul has written, what is Saudi Arabia? He has Yemen crossed out, mm -hmm. and he has wagered 5,700, so he drops to 100. Ryan has responded, what is Yemen? And he's wagered 1,400. The one thing I see mathematically is the potential of a tie with Paul. And Jennifer has correctly responded, what is Yemen? Uh, with a wager of 2,750, which takes her up to 20,650. She is our semifinalist. And at 11,600, Ryan is not out of the running for a wild card spot. Paul, with 100, it's pretty unlikely. Mm -hmm. So on Thursday, we get the contestants Ben Henry, a choral music director from Gross Point, Michigan. Kevin Walsh, a story analyst originally from Williamstown, New Jersey. And Mackenzie Jones, who, of course, I'm related to, a STEM programming coordinator from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and we have the Jeopardy round categories, The Constitution. Alliterative Jobs, Same First Name, All About That Base, U.S. Cities, and Five-Letter, Three-Syllable Words. Now that we've all got Megan Trainer in our heads, Five-Letter, Three-Syllable is tricky to get the hang of initially, I think. Mm -hmm. I didn't really think of the three-syllable aspect. I just thought of five-letter words that fit mm -hmm. the, the clue I was able to get there. Yeah. At the $600 level, we of all about that base, we, we learned that all your base are belong to us comes from the game Zero Wing, if you've mm. ever heard that phrase before. I have mm -hmm. heard that heard that phrase before. Now you know it comes from Zero Wing. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one comes up in the Constitution category at the $2,000 level, and Kevin finds it as the 26th pick. Uh, he has 3,800 at this point to Mackenzie's 4,400 and Ben's 2,600. He wagers 2,800. I think I would, I would go for a true daily double in his position, even though it's late in the round. Just the scores are low enough 
that he's going to be able to catch back up if he drops to zero. But 2,800 it is, and he gets the clue. The president has no pardon power in cases of this congressional proceeding. This one also maybe we've all covered recently. (laughs) Um, uh, He knows that is impeachment. So he moves up some. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Kevin is in the lead with 7,000. Mackenzie has 5,000. Ben is at 2,600. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories, German authors, musical theater, battles, that's my airport, crossword clues C, and in other recent news, we had a relatively rough board here, I thought. Or... For the contestants. For the contestants, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, especially the second half of the round, there was not much gain in mm-hmm. terms of uh in terms of, of dollar amount. We did in case in case you didn't know the origin, we did learn uh the origin of Cinco de Mayo in the battles category at the twelve hundred dollar level. Clue is Mexico had much to celebrate after defeating French forces at the Battle of Puebla, fought on this date in eighteen sixty two. That is the fifth of May, Cinco de Mayo. Mackenzie got that. Mm-hmm. But that is that is what it celebrates, and it is not Mexican Independence Day. Mm-mm. And it is not actually a particularly large holiday in Mexico. It is a Mexican-American celebration. Daily Double number two is in the That's My Airport category at the $1,200 level. Ben finds it. He is at 7000 behind Mackenzie's 9000 and Kevin's 11400 And he bets it all, which I think is the, you know, is the right call at that point. Mm-hmm. He gets the clue, this Dallas airport is named for a lieutenant killed in a plane crash while practicing for a military aviator test. And he guesses who is worth thinking maybe Fort Worth is named after him. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is uh, mostly love for Love Field. Mm-hmm. So he drops to zero. Yeah. And then Kevin is the one to find the third Daily Double as the 26th pick at the $800 level of battles. At this point... He has 12,200 to Mackenzie's 9,000 and Ben's 2,000. And he wagers 3,000. And he gets the clue. The Battle of Zama, a defeat for Hannibal, ended the second of these wars. And he knows that that is the Punic Wars. Mm -hmm. So that uh, increases his lead. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Kevin is in the lead at 16,000. Mackenzie is at 9,000 and Ben is at 2,800. They get the final Jeopardy category, Colonial America. And the clue, milestones along the eastern end of the Mason-Dixon line were marked on either side with the crests of these two men. Ben wrote, who are George III and Cromwell? I mean, Those are you, two you, men? You, those are two men, and you picked some, picked some names. Uh, you know, could have picked more obscure names, really. Uh, but those are incorrect, and he wagered 2,800. You know, if... If you don't know you, it's better to put something than nothing. Don't mm-hmm. blame him at all. Uh, Mackenzie put who are Mason and Dixon, thinking maybe this was a stupid answers category. Uh, <laughs> but that was that is not correct either. Uh, but she only wagered zero. She decided not to not to risk her nine thousand for a better wild card slot, and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps perhaps like try to get in at nine thousand. Uh, and Kevin wrote, who are Washington and Adams, which is, is also incorrect, but also like wrong time period, I think. But he also wagered zero. 16,000 is a good 
it's a good wild card position. Mm-hmm. I I think me personally, I'd wager two thousand one because if I get it right, I'm guaranteed to beat McKenzie. Right. And if I get it wrong, thirteen nine ninety nine is still a pretty good wild card spot. Mm-hmm. But that's the choice he made. Yeah. Uh, but he, because because it was a triple stepper, he ended up winning anyway. The correct response is who's Lord Baltimore uh, and William Penn or uh, uh, Calvert and Penn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the like founders of Pennsylvania and uh, Maryland. Yeah. I felt like this is one of the harder final jeopardies we saw we've seen recently. Oh, I think Yeah, so. I, I think yeah. so too. The, I I got there, but it took it took it took some some thought and I was not confident. I was mm-hmm. like maybe they're talking about them cuz like crests, like who else would have crests dealing with that part of the world, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But, but for sure like yeah, that one especially compared to I think the final jeopardies earlier in this week I thought were significantly easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that takes us to Friday. So on Friday, we have the contestants Veronica Vichit vatican a librarian from Portland, Oregon, Andy Wood, a writer originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Sam Cavanaugh, a substitute teacher originally from Carleton, Minnesota. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Painting, not the art kind. Also known as prefixes, Stephen King title references, 20th Century TV, and 1921. I think I had not realized until this category just how much Stephen King you're expected to know as a trivia player. Yeah. Bit like, yeah, his whole output is kind of fair game, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Stephen King has written a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Stephen King to cover. Um, and they did pretty well with that category. They only had yeah. one missed clue. The $800 clue of painting not the art kind was about something I can see from, well, not quite from my house, but, but close. You can make good money if you're up for climbing 600-foot towers of this bridge over the Hudson to keep it looking good. Sam tried what is the Verrazano Narrows. Um, not a bad um, that's the George Washington Bridge. Mm-hmm. That's, that's visible from uh, from Hastings. For, for the sake of us who have not been to New York in double digits of years, mm-hmm. the George Washington Bridge goes over the Hudson. Yes. Where is the Brooklyn Bridge? Ah, the Brooklyn Bridge goes over the East River. Okay. Um, so Presumably it's- to Brooklyn? Yes, it goes to Brooklyn. It goes between Manhattan and Brooklyn, and it's pretty far down south in Manhattan. Um, The Manhattan Bridge also goes from Manhattan to Brooklyn. The area of Brooklyn where the Manhattan Bridge arrives in Brooklyn is called the Dumbo neighborhood of Brooklyn, which is short for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. Um, (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yep. I'm trying to think what other bridges. What is, what's the Verrazano? Yeah, the Verrazano Narrows Bridge connects Brooklyn and Staten Island. Okay. Yeah. I'd say the George Washington, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, Verrazano Narrows. Those are kind of the ones that, the, the ones that are kind of trivia notable. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. 
We get the first daily double in the prefixes category at the $800 level. Veronica finds it. She's at $600, Sam's at $1,400, and Andy is up at $4,600. It's pick number 11. She wagers 1000 which is her maximum. And she gets the clue, originally attached to a word that ended, quote, netic. This five-letter prefix now fronts words dealing with futuristic concepts. And she thinks about it for a bit, but she works it out, and that is cyber. Mm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, she has made a good move. Uh, she's up to 6,400. Andy's in the lead at 7,000, and Sam is at 2,000. And they get the double Jeopardy categories. She sang it in a movie. Two-word countries. Corporate jargon. You're in the hole. Mythology. And T-Pain, with T in quotation marks. I imagine you liked the mythology category. Oh, I did. Gonna be honest? Thought it was a bit easy. It was all Greek mythology specifically. Mm, yes. Um, but I, I thought that a, you know, double Jeopardy category in the Tournament of Champions could have done a, a few deeper polls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I liked it because I'm not... I'm not as conversant in some of the finer points of mythology as mm. I could be. And this one, I knew all the answers. It's always fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. It feels yeah. good. For yeah. For sure. Yeah. No, but you're, you're right. It was, all, it was all pretty accessible. We got the Daily Doubles right at the beginning of the round. Um, well, not right at the beginning of the round. Second pick for uh, Daily Double number two, which was at the $2,000 level of two-word countries. Sam had gotten the first pick because he was in third place. Uh, he went to the $1,600 level of two-word countries, got that one correct, and moved on to the 2000 So he is the one who uncovers this one. And the other two are still at the same scores that Kyle just said, but Sam is up at 3600 and makes it a true daily double. So he's, he's looking to take the lead here. And he gets the clue, population 52 million, it has twice the people, but 20 times the per capita GDP of its neighbor to the north. And he figures that one out, that's South Korea. That's right. So he makes a good move to double up there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, two picks later, he jumps over to the mythology category and he gets the $1,600 level there. That, uh, and he follows it up at pick number four with the other Daily Double, which is at the $1,200 level of Mythology. Uh, so the other two scores have not changed, and he is up to 8,800, which is the lead, and he wagers 4,000. And the clue is, Bellerophon tamed this creature and rode it in his fight with the Chimera. And he gets that correct with what is Pegasus. Uh, so very early on in the round, he takes a significant lead, and both Daily Doubles are gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, just just a you know a point about mythology. Pegasus Peg Pegasus is a singular creature. There are there is not a race of Pegasuses or anything like that. I feel like Fantasia lied to me. Yeah, I mean, you could say winged horses could potentially be a thing. I mean, but they would have to come from a different mythological source because Pegasus is a standalone creature. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, when Medusa's head was cut off, uh, hmm. Pegasus sprang forth from the blood that spewed from her body. Because <laughs> that makes sense. Why wouldn't a winged horse come out of a severed 
head of a gorgon. Um, yeah. I mean, it's ancient Greece. They were very confused about where exactly life came from. Not yeah. that confused, though. <laughs> uh, I felt like the corporate jargon category was, like, words that make a lot of us irrationally angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. Synergy. Pivot. Ugh. When people talk about their bandwidth. I'm like, don't. I just don't have the bandwidth for that. It's like, yeah, that, mm-hmm. yeah. You you can just say I don't want to. I, I, that's all you need to tell me. Yeah, yeah. Lean in. That's that's complicated. We're not going to get into that today, right? But <laughs> <laughs> lean in is the kind of advice that you can really only take if you if you have like at least one nanny. Um, <laughs> but it gets lobbed at. People who are just barely hanging on, usually, usually women people. Imagine um, that. Yeah. Anyway, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Veronica is in the lead with twenty-two thousand eight hundred. Sam is at twenty thousand four hundred. Andy is at seventy-four hundred, and we have the final Jeopardy category: American authors. And the clue: the year before his eighteen oh nine birth. His parents acted in King Lear, leading scholars to believe he was named for a Lear character. I don't know if you covered this in your deep dive. On I this. definitely didn't, because I was not aware of this knowledge, like yeah. of this fact. And I, I didn't, I didn't guess this one correctly. This was a tough one. Andy responded, "Who was Dickens?" That is not correct. And he's wagered seventy three hundred. He's trying to move up into. Sort of, so I think he figures seventy four hundred isn't going to do it for a win or a wild card spot, so he wants to just maximize his winning. May as well bet it all, right? Yep. Try and move into the wild card standings. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam has gotten it correct with who is Poe? Edgar Allan Poe. Um, Edgar is apparently the virtuous son of the Earl of Gloucester in King Lear, and Sam has wagered twenty four oh one. He's trying to get above where Veronica is by a dollar. So that if she makes a zero wager or misses, he definitely gets that winner spot. Veronica has responded, who is Hawthorne? And she's wagered 340, so she's going to drop down. I imagine that 340 maybe is significant to her or something, and that she probably correctly inferred that with $22,800, all she needs to do is not make a huge wager. Yeah. Um, it, It would be basically unheard of. For <laughs> for twenty two thousand eight hundred to not be, uh, or anything close to it to not be um, wild card worthy. I don't know the highest threshold that there has been, but it certainly is below that. I'm yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she drops down, and that means that Sam is the winner uh, with twenty two thousand eight hundred one. So he's an um, automatic semifinalist. Um, but of course, at this point, now we know who our wild cards are, and uh, Veronica is not surprisingly at the very top. Of those mm-hmm. wild card standings with 22,460. Jason is, uh has the next wild card slot with 18,800. Nabir Sarma gets a wild card slot. Uh, he was at 12,199. And Ryan Hemmel gets a wild card slot with 11,600. That means we won't be seeing Mackenzie Jones, Steve Moulds, Andy Wood, Paul Trifoletti, Sarah Jett Rayburn, or Ben Henry mm-hmm. after this. Well played all, and next week we get the semifinals. I cannot wait. 
Yes, I, I am looking forward to them. So that's the end of the week. We are one week through Buzzy Cohen's stint as, as guest host. We have another week, and I'm sure it'll be just as good, if not better. But we have a Patreon. You can check it out. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And uh, you can go there to support us financially if that is something you feel the desire to do. Uh, we've got some content in there that you can check out. Uh, it's, it's getting more and more aged as each week passes. Uh, but it's like fine wine um, mm. or, or something. Yeah. So you can go and check that out. If you leave a, a review... Uh, or rating yeah, on iTunes or anywhere else, uh, we could also use that support as well, and uh, we'll read your review on the show, if that's attractive to you. And of course, we, we continue to remind you to uh, you know support local justice movements. Things uh, are trending better in some ways, uh, but there's still work to do, and backing off does not get that work done. So, uh, same places that we have normally talked about there in the show notes, if you check that out so so kyle do you have deep dive guesses i do i have too many which is always the case all right are you going to be talking about the legion of honor no are you going to be talking about the name of the rose no okay i decided not to do a literary topic in that case are you gonna talk about uh the curia Oh, no, I am not. Um, So I saw this question on Friday's game, and I was like, this is a whole area of trivia that I know exists. I'm not going to be able to learn it all or cover it all, but, you know, I could could delve into this a little bit. Uh, This is the you're in the hole category at the $1,600 level, and the clue was seen here as an early 20th century machine for this, which the U.S. Postal Service began doing in 1857. And there was a picture of an old-timey machine. Um, Andy tried what is sorting mail, um, but the correct response there was perforating stamps. And uh, I, I know that I know that philately is a thing that exists, and that was about the extent of my knowledge. So I thought that what I would do uh, was look into kind of the invention of the postage stamp and some kind of... Uh, some significant moments in like kind of the development of, of uh, how stamps as we know them came to be. Um, mm, okay. Yeah. And then go through a few, I know that there are like these particular stamps that are like famous that you should, that, you know, come up in trivia. And so I thought I'd go through um, and take a look at a list of kind of the most famous stamps. Once you start getting onto the like philatelist websites, uh, you, you know, it's like, well, here are the, you know, the thousands that I think are most important. Like, we're not doing that. We're doing like nine. We're doing <laughs> nine. I'll mention by name nine of the of the most uh, most important, most famous stamps. Uh, so, yeah, stamps. We're, we're doing. A, do you know anything about stamps, Kyle? I know that they go on letters. Yeah. I know that they go in the upper right mm-hmm. of an envelope. And I know that they once acted. That was a stamp act joke. Never mind. Oh, I get it. I get it. I like it. It was, it was very funny. Thank That's you. very funny. I'm going to be laughing about that one all night. Um, all right. So, <laughs> so postage stamps. One of the first things 
uh, in history that is postage stamp-ish uh, is that in 1680, uh, William Dockra, an English merchant in London, and his partner Robert Murray established the London Penny Post, which was a mail system, kind of a private mail system that delivered letters and small parcels inside the city of London for the sum of one penny. And uh, confirmation of paid postage was indicated by the use of a hand stamp to mark the mailed item, but this was not a stamp like the stamps that we stick on our mail today. This was like a like a like a stamp like a rubber stamp, although I guess it wasn't rubber, you know. And you like stamped ink onto the item to indicate uh, that it had been paid for. But it's considered by many historians to be the world's first postage stamp in that you were marking the mail to show it had been paid for. At that time, and for uh, for. Centuries to come, um, there were various systems around the world for mail delivery getting paid for and package delivery getting paid for. Um, But for the most part, up until the first postage stamp, uh, which we're going to get to in 1840, most systems involved the recipient of the letter or the package paying for the cost of its delivery. There, There were numerous problems with this because the labor was happening before the the financial transaction, right? So if they couldn't find the recipient, the recipient declined to accept the mail or pay for the mail, delivery would happen without any of the costs being recovered. Um, Mm. People also uh, found ways of taking advantage of that system um, in the same way that people uh, would make a collect call and like, uh, do you remember like the the commercial? (laughs) This is is Bob. We had a baby. It's a boy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, so people would uh, use various kinds of secret codes on the exterior of the envelope uh, so that the recipient could look at the letter, uh, get the information that the sender was trying to communicate, and then say, no, I don't want a letter from this person and decline to pay for the delivery of the letter. They wouldn't receive the letter and get to open it. But if you had a coded message on the exterior, then, you know. Yeah. They were all set. Um, So uh, in light of all this, in 1837, a British guy named Sir Roland Hill submitted a pamphlet entitled Post Office Reform, Its Importance and Practicability to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Thomas Spring Rice. Uh, He was summoned to give evidence before the Commission for Post Office Inquiry on February 13th, 1837, and read from the letter he wrote to the Chancellor, including a statement saying that the notation of paid postage could be created by using a bit of paper just large enough to bear the stamp and covered at the back with a glutinous wash. Uh, So this would become the first unambiguous description of a modern adhesive postage stamp, although the term postage stamp originated at a later date. Um, But what he was describing, that's that's still identifiable today as a postage stamp. Uh, His idea took hold. And the first adhesive postage stamp, uh, which is commonly referred to as the Penny Black, was issued in the UK on May 1st, 1840. Postmarks were used to cancel the stamps, indicating that the stamp had been used from the very beginning. Uh, so, you know, that, that part of the system, that was invented alongside the stamp. On May 8, 1840, the second stamp, the Two Penny Blue, was introduced. The Penny Black covered postage to anywhere within the United Kingdom, um, for a letter up to half an ounce. And then the two penny blue was also for postage for anywhere within the United Kingdom um, for letters up to a full ounce. Um, both stamps included an engraving of the young Queen Victoria, 
without perforations, and at this point, stamps were separated from their sheets by cutting them with scissors or a knife or ripping them. Um, the first stamps did not need to show the issuing country. There was only one country making stamps, so no country name was included on those first stamps. And the United Kingdom remains the only country, only country that omits its name on postage stamps. Uh, it uses the reigning monarch's head as country identification. Following the introduction of the postage stamp in the UK, prepaid postage considerably increased the number of letters mailed. Before 1839, about 76 million letters a year were sent within the United Kingdom. By 1850, they were up to 350 million. So the postage stamp was invented in the UK in the 1830s and 40s, um, but other countries quickly followed suit. Uh, the canton of Zurich in Switzerland issued the Zurich 4 and 6 Rappen on March 1st, 1843, they continued to calculate postage rates based on the distance that you were sending your letter rather than adopting the British flat rate system. Also in 1843, Brazil issued the bullseye stamp. Um, they opted for an abstract design rather than an image of uh, their head of state, uh, Emperor Pedro II, um, because they thought it was distasteful, the idea to have the image of your, um, of your head of state disfigured by marking it with a postmark. And then in 1847, the U.S. issued its first official postage stamps, five and ten cents, uh, depicting Benjamin Franklin and George Washington. Um, a few other countries issued stamps in the late 1840s. Um, the famous Mauritius Post Office stamps uh, were issued in Mauritius, of course, in September 1847. Many other countries started using postage stamps in the 1850s. And by the 1860s, um, stamps were used by most countries of the world. Uh, the UK was the first country to issue postage stamps with perforations. Um, as I said, up until that point, you would get your sheet and then you would um, cut them with scissors or a knife or, or rip them, which is of great interest to people who collect very old postage stamps. Uh, the first machine specifically designed to perforate sheets of postage stamps was invented in London by Henry Archer. Uh, an Irish landowner and railroad man from Dublin, Ireland. And the 1850 Penny Red was the first stamp to be perforated uh, using Archer's perforating machine. There was a period of trial and error, um, but then in 1854, <clears throat> the UK postal authorities started continuously issuing perforated postage stamps uh, in the Penny Red and all subsequent designs. In 1856... Uh, the U.S. postal system um, purchased a rotary machine designed to separate stamps, which had been patented in England in 1854 by William and Henry Bemrose, uh, printers in Derby, England. Um, the original machine cut slits into the paper rather than punching holes, um, but the machine was modified, and the first stamp issue in the U.S. to be officially perforated, the three-cent George Washington, was issued on February 24, 1857. Stamp enthusiasts are very interested in perforation in these early stamps. Um, so the standard for describing perforation uh, is you measure the number of holes in a two centimeter span, or conversely, the, the teeth or the, the perfs, they call them, uh, <laughs> uh, of an individual stamp in that two centimeter span. 
and uh, then the number uh, the number in two centimeters uh, is your uh, is is the gauge for that stamp. Uh, so the finest gauge ever used is uh, eighteen uh, on stamps of the Malay states in the early nineteen fifties. The coarsest is two from the eighteen ninety one stamps of Bhopal, capital city of the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. But modern stamp perforations tend to range from 11 to 14. Um, so for stamp collectors, perforations matter a lot. The same stamp design might have been um, issued with varying perforation patterns. And so there may be rarer and more valuable perforation gauges. So they pay attention to it for that reason. Um, but they're also interested in describing and cataloging perforation as part of the condition of a given stamp. Short perfs are undesirable for stamp collectors and reduce the value of a stamp, um, as are bent or creased perfs. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I had no idea <laughs> that, uh, that, this was, uh, that this was a big kind of thing in stamp collecting. And then I thought I'd, I, I came across some stuff about uh, like stamp adhesive. Um, the first self-adhesive stamp was issued by Sierra Leone in 1964. Um, countries with tropical climates tended to adopt self-adhesive stamps. That is stamps that you don't have to lick um, or like that you don't have to moisten the adhesive to get it to activate. So countries with tropical climates adopted self-adhesive stamps uh, earlier typically uh, than other countries um, because the humidity of a tropical climate tends to activate the water-activated adhesive um, and cause your stamps to stick together. And so transitioning to the sort of press and stick kind of stamps um, made sense there. Uh, the U.S. Postal Service's um, first self-adhesive stamps were issued in 1974. Uh, it was a 10-cent Dove weather vane stamp, but the adhesive tended to discolor the stamp, which makes the stamp collectors angry. Um, I, I mean, presumably that the U.S. Postal Service's stamp stuff is like run by people who care a lot about stamps. They didn't. They didn't like that. Um, so it so. was. <laughs> there was a bunch of like chemical engineering and like waiting for better adhesives. And in 18, 1989, another self adhesive stamp was issued by the USPS. Uh, outside of the philately community, um, self adhesive stamps have been welcomed as much more convenient. And by 2002, virtually all new U.S. Postal Service stamps uh, have been issued as self-adhesive stamps. And that's your thumbnail sketch of the history of stamps. There's a lot more. There's a lot more. Oh, I believe that. <laughs> um, but we are, we're just a podcast. We're, we're, we're not a philately <laughs> podcast. Uh, right. So <laughs> now you know a bunch of stuff about stamps. But let's talk about notable stamps. I talked about the Penny Black. Uh, the <clears throat> penny because it cost a penny and black because it was black. It's the world's first self-adhesive postage stamp used in a public postal system. And it was issued May 1st, 1840. Um, we've touched on that one. The uh, Basel Dove is another famous one uh, issued in the Swiss canton of Basel in Ju on July 1st, 1845. Um, it is the world's first tricolor stamp. And uh, Basel, because that's where it's from, and Dove because it has a dove on the Mauritius Post Office stamps are a famous and interesting one, issued by the British colony Mauritius in September 1847. Um, and they are called post, post office stamps um, because the wording on the stamps reads 
post office. Um, it was <laughs> soon changed to post paid. They're among the rarest postage stamps in the world. They were engraved by this guy, Joseph Osmond Barnard, who was born in England in 1816 and then stowed away on a ship to Mauritius in 1838. They, uh, they were issued in two denominations, um, one penny red, brown and two pence blue. Um, 500 of each value were printed and issued on September 21st, 1847. Many of them were used on invitations sent out by the wife of the governor of Mauritius for a ball she was holding that weekend. A legend has arisen that the words post office were put on there in error. That is not considered to be the case. And these stamps, uh, at both the post, the original post office ones are the, are the most valuable um, and coveted, but also the postpaid ones are, uh, are highly prized because of their, their rarity, um, their early dates, um, and their, Wikipedia said their primitive character as local products. I think that the, the bottom line here is like a small colony issued its own stamps like pretty early um, in, after the invention of stamps. Um, yeah. And that's sort of a, a fun, like an interesting novelty. Mm-hmm. The British Guiana one cent magenta is regarded by many philatelists as the world's most famous rare stamp. It was issued in limited, limited numbers in British Guiana in 1856. Only one specimen of this stamp is now known to exist. Uh, it, is a, it is in used condition. Uh, it has been cut into an octagonal shape. It was discovered in 1873 by a 12-year-old Scottish schoolboy in the Guyanese co- county of Demerara among his uncle's letters. Um, he was into stamp collecting, but there was no record of this stamp in his stamp catalog, so he had no interest in it and sold it some weeks later for six shillings to a local collector. It wasn't in his stamp catalog because it was so rare it hadn't been cataloged. Uh, mm. Yeah. And then that stamp collector's collection was sold to a Liverpool stamp dealer. Um, shortly afterwards in the same year, the dealer sold it, just this one stamp, for 150 British pounds. Um, it ended up in a massive stamp collection, which was willed to a Berlin museum. Um, and then that entire collection was taken by France as war reparations after World War I. Arthur Hind bought the stamp in an auction in 1922 for over $36,000, um, reportedly outbidding three kings, including King George V. Um, it changed hands a bunch more times. I don't want to like read you all the auction information. Um, but in 1980, it was bought by John E. DuPont for 935000 which set the world's record for a single stamp price. DuPont committed a murder and went mm-hmm. to prison. Um, and the stamp was believed to have been locked in a bank vault for the duration of his incarceration. That's a whole other story. Uh, I started scrolling through and like he has an interesting story, but that's, that's not what we're doing today. After DuPont's death, the stamp was sold from the DuPont estate on June 17, 2014, at a Sotheby's New York auction for $9.48 million. Uh, it took only two minutes to sell to an anonymous bidder. This was the fourth time that this stamp had broken the world's record for a single stamp bid. Uh, the purchaser was initially anonymous, but he has subsequently identified himself as shoe designer and businessman Stuart Weitzman. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, Stuart Weitzman apparently was a stamp collector in his childhood and uh, wanted the opportunity to own this one-of-a-kind stamp. Um, And he has consented to have it kind of 
displayed. Um, I think it's been in the Smithsonian and then sort of displayed um, at various uh, museums and things. The Hawaiian missionaries are the first postage stamps of the Kingdom of Hawaii, um, issued in 1851, known as the missionaries because they were primarily found on the correspondence of missionaries who were working in the Hawaiian Islands. Um, only a handful of those have survived to the present day, so they are uh, rare and treasured. Errors on stamps um, make them very valuable. So one of the first of those is the inverted head for Annas of India, an 1854 stamp in red and blue. Um, one of the first multicolored stamps in the world. Uh, the Basel Dove was before it. Um, and there are a small number where just the head was printed upside down. Those are especially valuable. Um, another one you probably heard of is the Treskilling Yellow. Treskilling means three shillings. Uh, it's, a, it's a Swedish postage stamp um, of which only one example is known to exist. It was canceled, uh, like postmarked, on July 13, 1857. Um, the the Treskilling, the three-shilling stamp, uh, was normally printed in a blue-green color, so this is an error. Uh, the eight-skilling stamp was normally printed in the yellowish-orange of the Treskilling yellow. Um, it's not known exactly what, what went wrong, um, hmm. you know, but it led to this single example of, uh, of a, a stamp in a, in a different color than you would expect for that denomination. Um, and only one example of this stamp has been found. Um, last sold in 2010, the winning bid amount was kept confidential, but the auction house valued the stamp between 1.29 million British pounds and 1.73 million British pounds before the sale. We've been very US and British focused with some exceptions here. Um, so let me note that the red revenues are Qing Dynasty Chinese revenue stamps. So revenue stamps are like when you're marking that like um, that uh, fees on or like duties on like tobacco, like imports, like whatever have been paid. Um, so these were revenue stamps that then were overprinted. So they took the print that the existing stamp stamps, they printed on top of the design that was on there um, to turn them into postage stamps in 1897. Mm. Uh, there are several varieties of red revenue stamps, um, but the small $1 is the rarest and most valuable. A single one was sold for 6.9 million Hong Kong dollars. I think last I knew it was like eight Hong Kong dollars to one US, so a little under a million US dollars. Um, although my my rates are not current, but you know, that's that's actually, you know what? The rates that I had in my mind were from when I was there in, like, 2011. So I'm not far off, I think. Um, <laughs> and you've probably heard of the inverted Jenny. You might have heard of the inverted Jenny. Um, also known as the upside-down Jenny or the Jenny invert. It's a 24-cent U.S. postage stamp first issued in May on May 10, 1918, in which the image of the Curtis JN4 air airplane in the center of the design is printed upside-down. Uh, it's probably the most famous error in American philately. Um, only one pane of 100 of the invert stamps was ever found. Um, so this is a very rare and prized printing error stamp. And uh, 
that concludes my, my short list of the world's most famous stamps. There are a lot more. If you're like, oh, this is interesting and I want to like learn about more rare stamps, there's a lot of lists on the internet. You can find a lot. Um, nice. <laughs> but now you know most of the... I think that's every one that's ever come up in a trivia game I've played, plus some that haven't yet. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's stamps. Um, cool. Yeah. Kyle, are you ready for a quiz? Oh, yeah. I'm always ready. So I was thinking, what am I going to do about this quiz? And then I thought, well, every year the U.S. Postal Service issues all of these new stamp designs about, like, historically and culturally significant things, anniversaries, people they want to honor. I was like, let's look at what stamps have been or will be issued in 2021 and ask some questions about the things that, uh, that are being honored by the U.S. Postal Service with stamps this year. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... Question one. For the Lunar New Year, which began in February, the U.S. Postal Service issued a stamp with the corresponding animal of the Chinese Zodiac. What year of the Chinese Zodiac are we in? Oh, goodness. (laughs) It's preceded in the cycle by the year of the rat, uh, and people born in this year that we're in now are said to have traits including honesty, diligence, and dependability. Uh, I think it's the year of the ox. It is the year of the ox. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right, 10 points. Apparently there's like a there's like a legend, I, I got this from the US Postal Service website, about like the ox carrying the rat across a flooding river on its back. And then the rat like leapt off the ox's back onto the other riverbank and like got ahead of the ox in that way. And I think that has to do with, like, the year of the rat being before the year of the ox. I, I, mm. I don't know. I was a little confused. But that's going to stick with me in terms of, you know, rat and then ox. Just have to figure out how to remember the other ten now. All right. Question two. The 44th stamp in the USPS Black Heritage series features a playwright. The recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and the first African-American to have a Broadway theater named after him. Who is this dramatist famous for the Pittsburgh cycle? Oh, my God. Oh, uh, August Wilson. That is correct. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> I was like, I have, I have forgotten this man's name so, so many, many times, times in my life. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I was like, it's going to happen again. <laughs> yep. Probably other people know this, but I... I knew that Fences was part of the Pittsburgh cycle, and then the the title, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, was in my head also. I think that's mm. come up somewhere recently. Um, mm. And that's also part of the Pittsburgh cycle. I just made that connection. Anyway, question three. A set of 10 stamps was issued earlier this year. Along with the three most obvious choices, the other characters featured include... IG-11, K-2SO, and L-337. On what date were these stamps issued? Uh, I, I would assume it's, it's, it's tickling something in my brain, and I'm, I'm going to guess that is May the 4th. It is! Uh, May the 4th be with you. Um, uh, yes, these were uh, droids of Star Wars. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the three that I didn't mention because it would make it too obvious were R2D2, C3PO, and BB8, who of course got their own stamps, but then these were other droids from the Star Wars franchise. Um, nice. All right. You're crushing it. You're at 30 points. Question four. There are special stamps to be used for non-machinable mail, that is, pieces of mail that can't be processed via the automated sorting system because of irregular shape or size. For some years, non-machinable stamps have featured various species of a particular type of creature. The 2021 non-machinable stamp features the Colorado hair streak. Previous iterations featured the Baltimore checker spot, the Spicebush swallowtail, and the Great Spangled Fritillary. What are these species of? Uh, old British people. Like, <laughs> 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 um, my 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 first thought is birds, but I I don't. I almost feel like that's too obvious. Colorado hair streak? Fritillary. I did mispronounce it. It is the Great Spangled Fritillary, which I'm sure is why you haven't. Oh, well, now that you got it right. <laughs> Jeez Louise, throwing me yeah. off. Uh, I'm going to go against my gut, because like, I just, I don't know. They, it's, they, those are names that sound like birds, but I'm going to go against it, and I'm going to say fish. That's not a bad guess. They're butterflies. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I uh, I went for the weird ones because I was like, I can't, I can't be like, and the monarch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that would give it the tiger. Sure. I, I I was hoping the spice bush swallowtail would make you think of tiger swallowtails, which are another one that that is a very familiar butterfly to mm. me. No, um, it made me think of swallows. Oh yeah. And their tails. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that that totally makes sense. All right. Well, you are at 30 points. And question five. I wrote a sports question. Hopefully I didn't do anything too embarrassing. Uh, (laughs) This athlete will be the 31st baseball player to be featured on a U.S. postage stamp. A catcher for the Yankees for most of his career, he won more World Series championships as a player than any other player in Major League history. But he's at least as famous for his witticisms, although he claims that he really didn't say everything he said. Uh, that's Yogi Berra. It is Yogi Berra. Yeah. Yes. It turns out that a lot of the mom quips I say originate as Yogi Berra quotes. So. Oh, he, he had some good ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, when you come to the fork, take it. Take uh, it. Mm-hmm. It's one that I use on the regular. All right. So you're at 40 points, and we're going to call the final category U.S. States. Well, I know all 50 of them, so I'm going to bet all 40. All right, so for 80 points, a stamp will commemorate the bicentennial of this 24th state's statehood. Famous individuals from the state who have been featured on previous postage stamps include Josephine Baker, Edwin Hubble, Mark Twain, and Harry S. Truman. What state is this? Oh no, am I going to get this wrong? Oh, I... I... I'm just going to... Missouri. It is Missouri. Okay, okay, because I was like, that came to first, and then there was that little thing that was like, no, I, I think it, it's not Missouri, it's Kansas. So mm. I don't think it's Kansas, but then is it Kansas? No, it's Missouri. Yeah, yeah, it's Missouri. Uh, so congratulations. 
you have 80 points. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Apparently, um, the, the stamp of Harry S. Truman, I don't know if he's been on more than one or if he's just been on one, um, but when I, when I was looking this up, the stamp of Harry S. Truman was a commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II. But the first design that the U.S. Postal Service proposed to commemorate the end of World War II was a stamp with a picture of a mushroom cloud. Oh, why? I know. And Bill Clinton was like, um, no, come back with something better. <laughs> yeah, really? Like, that had to pass through committee. <laughs> what were they thinking? Yeah, like, how did more, like, that couldn't have been just, like, the director, like, you know, sketching a doodle at his desk and being like, oh, I have a meeting in five minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what ended the war? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. The atom bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> yeah, it was it was covered in the Times too. So this isn't just like some random thing I found on the internet. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, yeah. Um, what do you think? Uh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So you're you're finishing with eighty points. Congratulations! And Thank nice you. work. Thank you. That was a, a very enjoyable quiz and deep dive. That was really yeah. That was awesome. I feel like I'm much more likely to get the stamp questions correct next time they come up in any of the trivia things I play. Tell me about it, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, well, thank you, Kyle, for uh, for potting with me. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Uh, such a delight to share this time with you. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or re- review if you would be so kind. Uh, we gave you our Patreon information a while back. If you want to check that out, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And uh, we'd love it if you would tell your friends, especially like if they're hyped up about the Tournament of Champions, tell them that they can, you know, come on over and like listen to recaps and analysis and you know, chit chat about it. Maybe they'll be into it. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week with the second week. The semifinals and finals of the Tournament of Champions. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.